Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your go-to resource for all things pipeline and revenue production in the tech sales world. Technology marketing, sales development, sales, and revenue operations have combined to create the go-to market engine fueling the success of SaaS startups and established companies alike. Each week, the Sales Development Podcast dives deeply into the strategies, tactics, people, processes, and technology that fuels the revenue machine. The Sales Development Podcast is brought to you by Tenbound. Get more free resources, insights, and intelligence today at tenbound.com. And be sure to like and subscribe on YouTube. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am honored and blessed to have the next guest on the show. And it's a two-time return winner here, which is very <laughs> rare on the Sales Development Podcast. Michael Tuso, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing very well, and I am super excited to be here. I know it's been like five years or something crazy like that, so I just couldn't wait to get back on the show. Oh, man. I mean, you're very well known in our industry, and actually, we were talking about this. Your talk at the Sales Development Conference a few years ago is one of the top-viewed YouTube videos that we have up there. So if you guys haven't watched that, go to YouTube and check it out. That was a very fun talk. It was a great audience. Yeah, I remember that experience very fondly myself. Okay. So dude, you're doing a bunch of really cool stuff right now. If people don't know you, how did you get into the whole sales and marketing technology world (laughs) we inhabit? And what have you been doing up to what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. So my career has been crazy and all over the place. So I actually started with a lot of people also know Tito Port in our space. I started working with him early in my career. They had this interesting like work abroad type program. You know, it's like when I basically a year after I graduated college and you would go basically be an SDR, but it was kind of like studying abroad, but you were an SDR. That's how I got started in sales. And I was like hooked because I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool. I can travel. And then we went back to the... When I came back to the US, I had a job with the company that sort of sponsored us abroad and then moved from SDR to, I did some managing while I was overseas too. But when I came back shortly after, became like an account executive and then moved into leadership. So that was like pretty unique like scenario in terms of that, like working abroad piece. And then I ended up moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, worked for a few startups in Los Angeles. And then I met the founders of Chili Piper while in LA, and I was their first sales leadership hire in Los Angeles and moved to San Francisco shortly after that. Basically built out all the processes in the early stages at Chili Piper, which was super exciting. I learned a ton. It was like at the ground level. They weren't even at quite a million dollars in revenue yet. So super, super early. I had never quite joined a company that early before. So it was extremely exciting, very fast paced, but also really focused on centered around learning, coaching, training, all the things I deeply care about as it pertains to both sales development, but sales in general, as I worked with account executives and account managers as well. And amazing experience at Chili Piper. It's an essential tool for sales development, especially, but also other teams as well. And I knew that from being an SDR manager. And I was like, I could sell this and I can teach other people how to sell it. So I, you know, had a really great time building out the team, the founders there, and then scaled through Series B. And then I left to pursue a couple of my own projects. That's what I'm working on right now. Yeah. And those are super exciting. I want to talk about that. But it's interesting because you came up through the sales development world, but it broadened quite a bit when you were at Chili Piper. I mean, over the course of the... How long were you there? So I was there for about three and a half years. Okay. Yeah. Because by the end of it, I mean, it's sort of an integrated you know, role that you came in right in the intersection of marketing and ops and sales development. Yeah. So we actually like, were thinking about a pathway for me and like, was it VP of sales? Was that like where I wanted to go? And I sat down in my one-on-one, it was like a February in like 2019. And I was like, I don't really want to be a VP of sales. Like it's not something I aspire to. A lot of my friends were really burned out and (laughs) get blamed for everything. And I was like, I don't want that. I want to focus on what I care deeply about, which is like, really setting the processes, the training, the coaching, the infrastructure that makes this like a really well-oiled machine. And you might argue that that is a VP of sales 
who does that, but I really wanted to like double click on this learning and development piece with the actual individuals on the team. So I was like really singularly focused on that, the sales experience for, you know, the customers as well. Like, so I really kind of took the reins of like coaching and training. And I ran with that at Chili Piper across all of the different like revenue teams. And that's where I felt like I thrived the most, but it was because of, I think the results of like working with people and, you know, there's many people where maybe their performance was low and I'm like, I got this, like, let's work together. And this isn't going to be a today or tomorrow fix, but this will be like a prolonged commitment to learning and development on an individual basis. We're going to fix this. We're going to get better. We're going to, you know, put the right learning and structure both on an individual level and across the organization. So we had fun with it. We would like take books, like never split the difference and really workshop it and break it down to almost like a tedious level and then like make it very chili piper. So like if you get an objection, you know, you talk about hostage negotiation in the book. Well, like that's great to read it in a book, but you have to operationalize it in such a way that it makes sense for your sellers. Otherwise they read it and go like, that's interesting, but how does it apply to me? So we would take a book like that and like, okay, if he talks about like how to get to a no, you know, oriented answer and not always be focused on like a yes, like how can you break that down and be like, well, how could you do that with a chili piper specific situation? And then you practice it over and over. So yeah, it was a really, it was broad in the sense that I really enjoyed the revenue specific coaching and training across the organization. And it was really, it was really fun to me to be able to do that. And then also watch the company grow, you know, as a direct result of something that you did. And it was, yeah, Chili Piper always has a very special place for me. Would you say that that role became sales enablement? Is that the term that you would use? for what you're doing? Or is it even broader than that? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I think like definitely there were elements to my job that were sales enablement, but everyone defines like sales enablement differently. Like one person I was talking to is like, well, the enablement piece is really like the one to many. And then, you know, I does sales enablement report to sales as a report to marketing. Like those questions I think haven't been there's no unified answer. Maybe it leans one way or the other, but I haven't found it to be unified. And I found like many differences between what I was doing and other sales enablement professionals. So going back to that one-on-one with the CEO, I said, you know, I don't want to be a VP of sales, but this is what I want to do. And it took us a little while, but we invented a title for myself. And my title was director of revenue performance. And it fit exactly what my job was. Like my job was to make the revenue perform and that's what it did and continues to do. And so what it was very broad in the sense that I oversaw onboarding, but I also had like extremely pronounced role in hiring to begin with. So that's like kind of like a hiring manager type thing. And then then the enablement piece, and then also like the coaching and training, I would always gravitate towards like skill building as opposed to like how people might do like, hold people kind of like accountable and one on ones and inspect their pipeline and things like that. I think that those things are really essential and important. But where I was really focused was like, the individual skill building, which usually falls to like a director of sales ends up doing like some of those things. So it was a very broad role. In many senses, I feel like, you know, I had some grace from the founding team and that they worked with me to craft this role that was really specific to me and my skill sets. And I was extremely grateful for that. And why revenue performance? Like, how do you define revenue performance? Yeah, it was really broad. I mean, we were like in the early stages when, you know, you have a couple million dollars in revenue now, like I was doing things like coming to your conference and going to, you know, trying to help them with like branding and things like that as well. And being, you know, putting chili, getting chili piper out there, especially on the West Coast. At one point, I was the only West Coast hire, I believe. So there were these other elements too, like where does branding come into play, which we know is like so essential today. So the revenue performance piece was really zoned in on the coaching, training, and enablement. But then there were things like speaking at conferences and things like that as role. It was a really unique role in that sense. But I'd say like the day-to-day, I was like working 
with the reps on specific deals or specific skills or really what was needed at the moment. One example, someone's, there were two reps on the team, their outbound close rate took like a huge nosedive. And like the person that would like ultimately have to like identify and hypothesize like what's going on here and how do we fix it? That would like fall to me. But then like, I'd also be like on podcasts and, you know, helping like organize dinners and things like that. And I think that's because those things also interested me if they didn't, like, I don't think like I would have worked on them, but I really just like enjoy conversations like this, where you can talk to and learn from industry leaders. And also as a side effect, oh, by the way, this does help the company as well. But the bulk of my job was definitely like working with the individual reps. And there was a big training capacity, but I think I emphasized the coaching side more. That's so interesting. And it's the pluses and minuses of a startup. One of the pluses is you can kind of define your role because everything needs to get done. Like you got to do everything. (laughs) And then, you know, hopefully you can gravitate toward things that you really enjoy and you're good at, you know, and the company can support you in that process and even creating a position, you know, based on what you're good at. And so you took, you know, this passion and there's a couple of things that you're working on. You took this passion and you took everything out of your head and you put it into a book. And so tell me about that process. How did you, you left Philly Piper and then you had, you know, this opportunity to document all this. Yeah, I had been thinking about a book for a while and I mentioned it to friends and things like that. And I basically just like, when I was going back to that experience, when I came back from living abroad and I was back at Citrix in North Carolina and I was like, starting to read books like The Challenger Sale and like some of these other books, Spin Selling, et cetera. Challenger Sale really helped me as an early rep because uh, it helped me get in a mindset. I don't know that every customer needs to be challenged, but I will say that the book like really did help me at that time. But I felt like a lot of the sales books like never spoke to me as like someone that just graduated or, you know, is just entering the workforce in sort of an entry level capacity. And then you have this tough job of like prospecting with not like a lot of business acumen. And I just like, it always stuck with me that like I, today, like haven't read a sales book and I read a lot (laughs) and I just never found a business book that spoke to me in that like mindset. And so it stuck with me and stuck with me for a while. And a lot of other people that I had spoken to felt like the same way. And so I said, what if we write a book that's really engaging, introduces a lot of these concepts, like talks about the important issues that like sales development, account executives, account managers are going through like right now, but it's engaging. And like, maybe there's storytelling in there. Maybe you can like learn, you know, and I don't expect everyone to like agree with me 100% of the time. But like, let's get the conversation started. Let's develop something that's engaging. And also, I wanted it to be a little bit of a capstone project for me of like, what have I learned in scaling, you know, a company to a nine figure valuation. And so what are the things that I learned? How could I share that with other people? Because, you know, to me, it's exciting when I see things like sales as, you know, a major or classes that you can study in college and people are paying attention to it. People are treating it like a discipline. You know, people are learning about it and studying about it and trying to get like better. I don't know if I saw as much of that, you know, when I was new to the role. And so that's exciting for me to see, but I also feel like we need the material that engages people and speaks to them and helps them learn in a way that is conducive to how they learn. And so in many ways, I kind of wrote that book to myself a decade ago saying, here's a book for you that you can read that's engaging, that will be your kickstart to help you to get started on the right foot in your career. So yeah, it's we're very far along in the process right now, already thinking about the next book. (laughs) So yeah, things are wrapping up with that and we'll be publishing later this year. Oh, that's amazing. And how is it structured? Like, how do you read the book? Yeah, so it's really fast read. It starts off with each chapter starts off with a story. I just think that storytelling and sales is so important. And then in the bulk of the chapter, I start talking about sales concepts. And that's presented through like headers throughout the chapter. And then each chapter ends with tactical takeaways in the form of like a try this out. So there's like five to seven takeaways 
at the end of each chapter. So you get kind of this predictable flow. Okay, starts with a story, middle of it are the concepts, and then you get your tactical takeaways or things that you might think about to, you know, try in your own role. And that's like really what, you know, I wanted when I was starting out. So I did like a lot of research and meeting with individual salespeople to kind of get their feelings about books that, and what would be engaging to them. I almost treated it like you would discovery in sales, lots and lots of phone calls around that. And then what was really interesting is I wrote the book and then I got to a place, they went to go publish it. And I said, stop, that's not the right book. We, oops, like we can't publish this. And then I rewrote the entire thing, just about. And I have since found a lot of fiction writers that where that dynamic happens, where they write the book and they're like this, and then they go to publish it and they're like, this isn't the right book. And that is exactly what happened to me. You know, it's like when you write a LinkedIn post and you go to post it, you're like, that's not really how I wanted to say that. And then let me go, you know, sort of like write from the heart, edit with the mind. I'm a big like proponent of that. I learned that in high school, but it was exactly that. It's like, you know, this is great. I got this first version out. Let's really crystallize and refine this. And right when that happened, like I started working with my editor in like a much deeper way. And we really, crystallize, okay, this isn't what you wanted to say. What do you want to say? And then he did a phenomenal job, like helping with the structure and the flow. I actually just reread the book again this weekend. Having a good editor is essential for writing a good book. And I feel so blessed that I had the editor and and the team that I have. That's amazing. So what made it come to a screeching halt there and make you have to take it back? It's just you read it and it was just not what you were trying to convey. Yeah, it wasn't like the title was off, the concepts were off. It was like, it felt like almost like cutesy instead of just like being this like dynamic, engaging, super tactical book that I wanted to write. So the goal was off. And ultimately, when I was thinking about it, I was like, how would the reader, like you have to obsess, the same way you say like obsess about the customer, you have to like obsess about that reader experience. And that was off for me. It wasn't quite that experience that I thought would be delivered in a way that was super crystallized and good for the reader. And that's ultimately what it was because when they were about to publish it, I was like, pump the brakes. This isn't not reader centric enough. It was intellectually, it was like a fun exercise. There were a lot of things that we did. And I think what I'm going to do actually is like write a blog post about some of the concepts that I was going to publish in that. And I think it makes more sense as a blog post in the sense of like what I was going to do. I actually had a lot of friends that were tied to the old book because I had talked about it so much. So they're like, oh no, but it's kind of a morbid phrase in the writing world. But one of my editors was like, you have to kill your darling. It's like you create this thing and then it's not the right thing. So you have to get rid of it. And it's a painful process, but it's an essential one. A lot of writers go through, like they spend hours and hours and hours writing. And then they're like, that's not it, you know, or there's one guy that took a month to write a paragraph, you know, that they were telling me about. And so it's a natural result of the creative process. So in retrospect, it was great to learn about it. Even though, yeah, if that's a little bit of a morbid phrase they used. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see that. And how did you go about finding the publisher? Did they find you? What's the process of pitching it and all that? Yeah, so this is so interesting. Like I just wrote up a doc. If anyone wants to write a book, ping me. <laughs> I could save you so many headaches, especially at the early stages. and. So with me, it was determining, okay, do I want to write the book or do you want to pay a ghostwriter? And I said, there's a certain skills development and it would, you know, build some character, build character if I did it. And that's what I wanted to do. So I said, I'm going to write it myself. Okay. And now there's types of publishing. Am I going to do self-publishing? Well, I'm trying to build a business. So that seems like a lot of project management. I don't really think that that's like a route. And then there's writing a manuscript and trying to shop it around at traditional publishing. So like your Penguins or, you know, Harper, things like that, which a lot of people have tons of success with both of those options. However, I felt like neither of those options was right for me. There's a third kind of middle of the road option called hybrid, And it's exactly how the name implies a hybrid publishing is you kind of pay them to be like project managers for you because to help with like the 
self-publishing side. So they help you with the graphics. They get your editors lined up. They do all of the little minutia that goes into a book that you don't have time for, which was excellent. I was like, yes, that's what I need. And then the last thing though, is they you have the option for them to just kind of self-publish it for you. Or you can kind of go that more traditional route, which is they try to sell it to like Barnes and Noble and they like sell to sales reps for you and these big publishing. And so there's these like sales conferences that they do. And I don't claim to have all the answers. I'm a first time author. So I'm learning about these things as we go. But generally speaking, that's the process. And so I was like, you know, it would be, let's see what happens if we try to go in the bookstores. So that's where we're at today. There's a sales conference coming up. My publisher is called Girl Friday. They're super excellent, very professional, very clean, beautiful books, great track record. I was actually referred to them, which is a whole separate story, but they will be pitching my book now that my book is like complete. There's like, it just needs to be proofread at this point. So they'll pitch it next month at this big book sales conference, and then it will come out in September later, later this year. So I'm very excited about that. Wow. Okay. So it's sort of a hybrid approach between the traditional and, you know, going the route of walking it around, I guess is what people used to do, but, you know, going to Wiley and all that. Exactly. Got it. Okay. Well, I can't wait to read it. And your other darling, which we're not going to kill off, is you're starting a company and you're coming out with this, all the learning, you know, that you've done up to this point. So, Tell us about the company and what problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, so we're really focused on expansion sales and account management. So, you know, you, especially in 2023, like this is the big focus of the year, right? And organizations like really mature organizations have not figured this out. You know, we've figured out, you know, certain companies have figured out how to get anything you want to your doorstep in 24 hours, but maybe they haven't even figured out account management, like it's or post sales or this expansion sales piece in the B2B sense. And so that's where double clicking on a lot of people are talking about our net revenue retention right now, you know, maybe before churn or gross revenue retention was the big focus, we're seeing a big pivot towards that right now. You know, there's not a company on the planet who doesn't want to increase their ACV, their, you know, book of business, who don't want to, you know, grow the amount of money that their current customers are already paying them. But when you go and double click on the people who are actually doing the role, anyone who's doing the role, even if the structure at companies are different, go and look at what they're doing. And it is very messy. And for someone who is obsessed with coaching and training and skills development, like myself, I came to this conclusion and I was like, it's not the people. We're doing everything we can with the people, not at Chili Viper, but every organization I have ever worked at, this piece is missing. This post-sales piece hasn't been figured out. And so maybe this SDR world that I come from felt feels like a well-worn path now, 10 years, more than 10 years later, this expansion sales piece does not have that same well-worn feeling. Even though the account manager role is very old, you've had expansion reps around for a long time. All of the tools built are very pre-sales focused. Um, even how you forecast and even how you do simple sales processes, if you go and look at how do you identify ex an expansion opportunity... And you could say something like, oh, we just talk to people and things like that. But it's not quite the right answer. For example, there's companies who can stop using your product like right away. And this is just one, I'll give a product-oriented example, but there's many ways to catch on expansion where, where you should be taking action. So maybe they take off your product, you go for a renewal, you think it's like you're trying to upgrade them or something like that. And, you, and they're like, oh, we actually stopped using your product. This is a huge problem and it happens all the time. And it's the type of thing where things become surprises really easily in post-sales. And it's because the right tooling and infrastructure is not set up to empower and enable these salespeople. And so that's just like one example. You know, I just went through a sales cycle where I was like, hey, I need this product right right now, but I need this other product like later on. That handoff to the other team, like 
almost always gets lost, right? So you have one product today, you're sort of self-identifying, disclosing, you know, a need in the future. Those are just known knowns though. Like how do you identify unknown unknowns where you can explore expansion opportunities? And so it comes down to two things. It comes down to identifying expansion opportunities. And then it comes down to executing those expansion opportunities. And then the last thing is like renewals, which is kind of a whole other can of worms that happens in post sales. And so, so anyway, that's how we're thinking about all these things right now is that expansion sales is a huge problem. It is not this well-worn path that people think it is. If you double click on processes within companies and the tools that they're using, they're logging into a million different places. They have Google Docs City and there's no accountability and it is not the rep's fault. And through a little bit, just a little bit more enablement with the right tools, we can get there. And we've already seen that. So yeah, that's kind of the space that we're playing in right now. Being an SDR, sales rep, and manager is tough, and it's getting tougher. Creating an outbound sales pipeline is hard, and getting harder every day as well. You're not given any training, coaching, or support. You're pretty much on your own to figure it out. Should you cold call, send emails, or post on social media? Your prospects are buried in messages, and now it seems harder to stand out and get a response. You try to educate yourself on how to do it, but the online landscape is a confusing swirl of contradictory messages, empty motivational speeches, and outdated sales advice. Time is running out, and you're spinning your wheels. Now what? You now have a resource to really help. You now have 10Bound Plus. 10Bound Plus is your guide to building your outbound sales skills in your own time and in your own way. You join a community of like-minded people who are striving to achieve success in your same position. You get access to online, self-paced learning courses, discounts to 10Bound events, and much more. Join today at 10boundplus.com. That's 10boundplus.com. Wow, it's a deep, <laughs> deep understanding, and it's a big problem. I can think of one... We were working with a company and they sold to the sales development teams, you know, at these various companies. And so we started talking to their customers and the director of sales development at a few of their customers didn't know that they had the tool. Wow. <laughs> so they have these big implementations of 50 seats or something like that. And the person who's running sales development didn't even realize that it was available to their team. And that's one example if you because there's so many tools and there's so many renewal cycles and contracts and different things plugged in people coming and going from companies and implementing a new piece of software and then leaving and then you've got the poor you know CSM who is calling and their main point of contact doesn't work there anymore and then they have, they have to move on to put out fires and different things like that. So it does seem like there's a lot of chaos, you know, in that space. Yeah, absolutely. There certainly it can be a lot of firefighting. And one of the things that we want to do is like get out of this world of reactivity when it comes to revenue specifically and get into this proactive mindset. For example, like you just brought up firefighting, like are we tracking activity and are we tracking proactive opportunity creation of account managers? Who's tracking that? A lot of people aren't. Tracking is something that is so basic and so simple and so easy to do. You know, maybe the activity piece, not so much, but the opportunity creation, we should be able to do that at least. And there's tons of problems just with that right there. Now there's a million ways we can fix the problems and go about fixing them in, in post sales. Like you mentioned, people, maybe there's a account mapping, you know, maybe for a mid-market enterprise, maybe there's account planning. You can't just like enter your notes in and, and cross your fingers and hope that's like good enough. You know, there's some tools out there or companies that have said 3% of all sales conversations make it into the CRM. So the notes by itself are not going to cut it. So, you know, Salesforce is very much focused on that pre-sales emotion. And this becomes a forgotten side of sales. And in 2023, companies who are not paying attention to this expansion sales piece, they're not going to, it's the people who are doing layoffs. It's the people that aren't worried about profit, you know, profitability in the past and this growth at all costs. Like it all fits together. It's a, also a lack of understanding. You can't just close a deal and cross your fingers. Like there's so many things that need to happen there. Also something else that you brought up, which was if you don't know that you're using something 
what if, you know, you're also using multiple tools that do like the same thing, right? And if you don't, you have to know how to unsell another solution and put yours in where maybe they're using multiple different things. You know, if you have, we'll pick on a sauna and ClickUp and Notion, because I think those are really common. You know, if you're using ClickUp and you're like, let me use this other tool, like this happens all the time in organizations. If you're proactively like, working on the task of expansion, identification and mapping, white space planning, you know, maybe you capture that intelligence, you document it and you unsell proactively those other tools. That's a dynamic I'm seeing people become like more aware of, fortunately, this year and it's come up on a lot more of my calls. But there is so much work that we have to do here. And unfortunately, a lot of organizations are kind of like, oh, you know, the status quo is okay. And I don't think that the narrative is going to play out well for them in 2023. No, it's interesting because we met at Saster a few months ago and the famous chart of a SaaS company, any SaaS company is you want to get that installed base of subscriptions and then you start to build on top of it. And it's like, we've been so focused on building on top of it that you also got to think about all the current subscriptions and how to grow from there, which is interesting. Yeah. It makes me think of the Microsoft example everyone's been talking about, right? Like Microsoft Teams versus Slack. It's like, it's amazing. Maybe I have this perception because I'm a Slack user. Oh, Slack has this huge, big, great, successful company. But then you start looking at the numbers and you're like, whoa, Microsoft is coming for you. And then the secret strategy there is bundling across people who are already using Microsoft products. Like it intuitively makes sense. It's also easier to sell to your current install base. And they, you better believe it, they are unselling Slack every opportunity they can. And it's a huge market play for them too. But for some reason in other parts of the SaaS world, we're taking it to that level of sophistication. And it's absolutely going to be essential. That's why I think like this whole like, Personally, I think we need to reinvent how we do the CSAE relationship. When an AE closes a deal, rarely have I seen post-sales success with expansion. They're so incentivized and just focused. It's not even about comp and, and the incentivization, but it is a part of it. But it's not even that. It's a focus thing. They are so focused on that new sale because the new sale is also hard right now that you need someone dedicated to it. And then there's an argument that CSMs, you know, help with NRR. I think that's really unfortunate and unfair to the customer. If I am going to talk to my CSM, I don't want this ulterior motive of, oh, I'm going to get you with sales. And that is coming from sales for someone who has sold his entire life. There's this other dynamic that needs to have, there needs to be someone to own the business relationship in post-sales. And the customer success rep in my view, is very adoption and product and in some instances, like implementation focus. And I think ultimately that is good for business. I think when you start disguising them as salespeople, like going back to the sales experience, going back to the customer experience, I never felt personally as a buyer that that was the right experience for me. And so I don't intend our company or even advising other people that I talk to that that is the wisest thing. Like we shouldn't be disguising CSMs as this is the type of like radical, I think, like customer focus that, in my view, is needed in the SaaS world. Yeah, you look at it from both sides. And, you know, a lot of the CSM doesn't want to be annoying and, you know, be intrusive and trying to do upsells and stuff like that. That's why they became CSMs. Exactly. They want to take care of people and help people, right? Exactly. The skill set isn't, I don't want to say it's not there actually, but they're focused on something else. They want to do something else. They want to be, you know, an advocate. And I love CSMs. I think they do such an essential role at companies. You know, my partner is a CSM. It's vital to the business. But if you're disguised all the time as, you know, oh, I'm going to sell you, it doesn't feel good. I just went through an experience like that yesterday. And I'm like, you know, I'm tired of this. I think I'm going to churn, like, which is ironic. Market research. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So who do you then in your mind, how does that relationship work then? Is it the AE? Because in most companies, it seems like 
the AE is more incentivized to bring in new business and new logos and growth and it's all that and not as much, you know, upsells and, you know, taking care of the customers. Yeah. And I think that that focus makes a lot of sense. I think it's one of the things on paper, you're like, oh, we'll just have the AE like do both the selling. It's a broad category. It was like, well, that's like really the two different, totally different types of selling. And so I think that someone owning that relationship that I've seen work really well is maybe like an expansion only focused AE or an account manager. And then the account manager owns that business relationship. And then the AE stays focused. This specialization, you know, you start to specialize these customer facing roles almost the same way that you split the SDR and the AE. When we did that at Chili Piper, it was one of the biggest reasons why we got to the valuation that we did. And I had observed that and all the way back looking at Citrix, I had there was this team that never got any credit. But I was like, wait a minute, they're like the reason why we're hitting our numbers. And then we called them a growth team, but they were basically like expansion AE slash account managers. And they help with cross-sell, upsell, and they usually collaborate with the CSM on renewal. And I think that that's a much better relationship for the buyer when you have someone owning that business relationship. I'm sure there's people that disagree with that. People have really strong opinions when it comes to this and that's okay. But I think what is important is to have the conversation here. I don't even see that. I don't even see a conversation happening. And if there's a year to do it, this is the year to have that conversation. Oh, big time. And so in that role, the expansion AE role, what would be like a day in the life? Are are they prospecting for the accounts? Are they identifying people? Are they setting up calls with the users? What are they doing? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of prospecting, there's many different ways to go about that with your customers. There's a lot of companies have started in like embracing like a customer development representative. So maybe they had an SDR before, maybe the prospecting for a certain degree has gone down. It's been a lot harder for them. And I've seen diversion of resources to this middle of the funnel piece go really well for a lot of companies I talk to. So first, we'll tackle the prospecting piece. The customer development piece, this rep that maybe they diverted a little bit of attention from the SDR piece over to focusing on the customers. Now, is it only easier to book meetings with them? They're more likely the person most likely to do business with you is the one that already has. And that can be more true than with this type of role. And so this person kind of, sets meetings for the other AMs or even enterprise AEs I found on the team. And that's the dynamic I've seen work well. So that's the prospecting piece. The account managers and the account, maybe the expansion account executives at Chili Piper, I give an example. There's a month where I was like, hey, can we focus on the focus this month to be proactive opportunity generation? Meaning someone's not raising their hand and saying, let's, or, you know, I need more seats or I need more usage, et cetera. There's many different ways to get expansion revenue. And then the, not that let's ignore those people, let's do that. But in addition to this organic growth, let's try a little bit, just a little bit to set our own opportunities. The results were astounding. Like just with two reps on the team, like one of them was getting to like, if my memory serves me right, was in the low thousands of revenue and then went to like a hundred thousand, right? In ARR. And that is massive when you're a small company. And so I'm like, okay, let's like dive into this for six months. And then eventually you get people in these like really good, healthy habits of focusing on this like proactive piece. But here's the thing. You can't just like talk to people when you want something. So It's yes, I think that they should be like business focused, but the dynamic that worked for us was the account manager was like sort of that general point of contact. And the relationship for us was a little bit like what an AE and like a sales engineer's relationship was like, right? Like one was way more technical for sure than the other. That being in post-sales, the customer success manager absolutely was more technical. Our AMs were pretty technical too, but like they were solving problems for the customer to help them drive adoption, to help them achieve their customer objectives. And they worked closely with the account managers, no question. 
but they weren't also being like, let me do all this and implementation. And oh, by the way, I'm trying to close you. And it, that chaos was eliminated. And it worked really well for not only like the selfish reason of like generating more revenue, but for the customer experience as well. It was way better. And it was a really good model. And it, it's one I, I had been used to from previous companies that I worked at. So when I see people lean into that that model and they really give it a shot, I've seen it do you know, really well, but I would not encourage people to just like only reach out when you want something like the big thing, like people talk about is like, Oh, health score. Let's talk about, let's tackle health scores really quickly. When you talk about health scores, you can't just say product adoption is equal to your health score. Like that is crazy because product adoption is correlative. And so there's a correlation between someone using your product well and them being happy. But like, if I'm Peloton, and I'm using your product, you know, but there's an upcoming layoff that is like very obviously known, why should that be scored, you know, to the maximum when like, you know, that there's a layoff or something coming, right? So we need to move out of this world of only looking at one tiny thing and try to capture a bigger picture. And part of that is understanding what are the customer objectives? Are they being met, right? And before I go further on this, I had a chief customer officer tell me recently that someone told her, hey, you guys are doing awesome. We love it. You're our number one customer. And she's like, my goals aren't being met. I'm about to churn. And so on one hand, you have the customer saying, you're our best customer. And then you have this pissed off chief customer officer saying, I'm about to churn. And that's the problem with product adoption. Should we get rid of it? Absolutely not. It's essential. It's a critical piece to post sales. But we need to look at revenue health. We need to look at customer health in a totally different light. And it's by considering what are these like other tiny things that matter? Is the person who sponsored the deal ignoring you? Did you lose your champion? Are you multi-threaded with your champions? Are they, you know, is anyone responding? How do the end users feel? How does the admin feel? You know, is that product adoption where it needs to be? You know, are they hitting like their objectives? What are their objectives? What are the milestones for those objectives? Is that documented? So the amount of companies that are looking at health and a holistic light is, you know, unfortunately is I think quite low. And I hope that we get to this place where we start looking at health and like a really comprehensive light, it's really easy to just be like, oh, they're using the product well, they're healthy. It's unfortunate though, because it doesn't capture the full picture. If someone isn't hitting their goals, what they intended to buy your tool for, or maybe their goals change. I mean, you know, they, you hear statistics like the average VP of sales tenure is 18 months at a company. So if you're getting that degree of turnover, maybe objectives can change in an organization as well. So there's a lot to unpack here. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. But the point being is, again, like we need to have this conversation and double click on post sales because what's happening today isn't working. Yeah. I mean, I just think that 18 month stat is so critical. And it's something to really think about when you're talking to your install base that people, especially in the software industry, they're not at the company that long. They might be only a year or two. And suddenly, if you're not multi-threaded, then now your main champion is gone. <laughs> it also made me think, just on a side note, of I'm going out to my customers about the new programs that we have at 10Bound. And I realized I'm that guy. I've only come by once a year to ask for something because the note that I wrote a year ago is still in their LinkedIn, you know, messaging box. <laughs> so I'm just basically saying, hey, me again, it's been a year. You want to do it again or what? You know, so guilty. Yeah, we all do it though. And it's like, okay, well, I, and I've done it. So it's not to say like anyone is perfect or there's fingers to point, but it's more like, okay, like that's kind of the world we live in today. I get it. We're all busy. But like, what if there was a way to say you know, deliver something to them in the interim that makes them feel really favorable. You know, let's say, you know, I've spoken at your conference before, maybe it's a simple post sale check in, you know, you figure out why I went and you kind of see maybe what would propel me to fight for budget internally. And that's just like a quick discovery recap call after the conference, right, you get them in the moment when 
you know, they're most paying attention, right? Otherwise they forget, they, you know, maybe you do it right after so that they don't forget and they remember how positive of an experience, or maybe it's negative too. And you get that valuable feedback and you have that really tight feedback loop and it's not super elongated. And then you're like, I have this clearly documented. I have the actors documented. Maybe I deliver six months down the line for your type of company, some piece of information. Oh, by the way, this is super valuable based on what you said there. But that takes an enormous amount of work for sure. But I think like if we have tools in place to help us start to do some of that for us, you know, maybe we can start, you know, moving more into this like proactive world. And now you're having more of an ongoing conversation with them and not just showing up to pull the purse strings. And I've been guilty of this too. Like I could critique my own sales processes just the same way as like I'm saying these things. I just hope that we can start to have a conversation like we are today. Yeah. And this is what it's called Calypso, right? So yeah, this is what your company is going to be addressing, which is super valuable. We're really excited. And Calypso. yeah, yeah. Calypso, two L's. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I love it. The other quick thing, you know, I remember we were consulting with a company that had a lot of free users. So they had a free tier and a paid tier. Mm. And I don't know if this is what you could potentially address, but They had this huge base of really great companies that the people were using their product for free, but they hadn't upgraded or just a handful of people at these huge enterprise companies had actually upgraded. You know, we looked at that from an SDR perspective and we're like, okay, how do we tap into this without coming across as really creepy and, you know, weird to these people that plugged in a free product? But it seems like you're kind of solving to where, you know, we need to get in that conversation with the free users and even the paid users, because we're just barely scratching the surface of what could be there. Yeah, I think with another way of saying freemium is what we used to call it. Now we call it PLG product like growth. These free tier of customers is part of that. It's a really important concept because these people are usually paying a lot of attention to some of this product usage that I was talking about. but product usage, again, slice that into a part of the conversation, not the only part of the conversation. So, you know, in some senses, like, what am I using that's free right now? Slack. So put me in, we were talking about Slack earlier. So we'll continue with that example. Put me in that freemium tier, that PLG tier, you know, and figure out how to convert me, right? I think that that goes back to customer objectives, And what do they need to get them from where they are today into this like future state? And so that freemium piece or that PLG play is is super important and they need to have some significant recognized value. I think we overuse the word value in sales and sometimes it can be really nebulous and we're not being specific about what we're talking about. But what I mean by value is going back to that realized goals being met in a way that they're like really happy about. So if you're trying to convert me to a paid version of Slack first, why, you know, I've been using it for two years now, like maybe understanding maybe why I haven't done that. What, you know, clearly I'm going to continue using it and I'm very intent on doing that, what maybe there's features that I don't know about. Maybe that's part of the piece of like, not just reaching out when you want something, but maybe there's a part of Slack I'm not fully utilizing, but I could be. And then there's a customer education piece. There's no reason why an account manager can't help with that also. So that, you know, Mark Robert said it, I think on a podcast a while ago, the magic needs to happen. I think he's hundred percent right with that some magic needs to be realized but then we need to have a clear understanding of like where they are in their buyer's journey and how to convert them into this like paid tier and so that is something that i think aes who are trying to convert them are essentially acting like account managers because you have this context already yeah and there's different ways if i think about it it's like if you're using the product a lot but you know that you need those features that are behind the paywall you might just upgrade if it's not a huge expense if you could just put it on your credit card but you know one thing that that's interesting because you never hear from plg companies about asking just what are your goals you know with using the product what are you trying to achieve they don't really ask that and it's a great question because 
then you can go back and you have a conversation about how you could potentially help. Instead, it's just a barrage of emails saying, you need to upgrade, you need to upgrade, you need to upgrade. And after a while, you know, if you just sort of tune it out. Yeah. Why haven't I upgraded to begin with? Like you have to, that's your blocker. (laughs) So it might be important to figure that out. Yeah, exactly. I think like, you know, I think like, it's really easy to be like, oh, PLG contactless sales. Like this is the direction we're moving in. And we read a blog post that says that. And then we, we forget that, you know, some of this takes work. I mean, you know, the best product does not always win right? It's often the best distribution that wins. And so when you have both, you know, as the CEO of Gong would say, you're unstoppable, but you can't forget the sales piece too. And then if, okay, if we take it that it is true that people don't want to talk to salespeople as much as they did before, when they do talk to the salesperson, that experience has to be phenomenal. And I, I'm buying tools right now. And I am not, I am telling you as a buyer, I am having bad sales experiences. Not impressed. I've had maybe one in the past year that was good. And so we need to double click on this sales experience piece because yes, I need to talk to a salesperson sometimes. That's not going away. That's part of how I buy products. And I have questions sometimes that I need a salesperson to answer. Is do I buy products in a PLG motion? Yes, but I don't see like the sales profession being eliminated by PLG. And you would think that based on some of the blog posts that you read. And I think it's like very sexy to like go down this intellectual pathway of PLG and then kind of like just subtract salespeople out, but they're not going anywhere. And there's still these little micro moments that we can really capitalize on to provide these really excellent sales experiences. So then you take the product that's really good and you match it with a really good sales experience. That's the magic piece there. Rocket fuel. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think there's a lot of conversations and debate around kind of this topic right now, but I don't think that these fundamental sales skills or training around them are going away. I think that they're only getting more important because the number of bad experiences I'm having is very high. And so whenever I do have one of those experiences, I'm telling you like every purchase I have made in the past six months was based on the sales experience. Oh my gosh. Well, that's a perfect recap to your book that's coming out, right? (laughs) You're taking all these hard-won lessons and putting it in there. And that's a must-read for anybody getting into it or if you've been in sales for a few years, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Geared towards... I definitely wrote it to kind of someone in their first like five years, but I I also think it's just like applicable to the times that we're in. It's blocking and tackling. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. I'm so excited about the book and the company and how do we get in touch with you? Yeah, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So you can probably just find me there and I'm pretty responsive and hope that we can start a conversation there. Yeah, definitely. And hopefully we can get you to speak at another conference coming up. Absolutely. That would be great. Always (laughs) good to see you and come on the show. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.